production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Dr. Richard Harry Harris is an anaesthetist and cave diver. His expertise saw him advise, overlook and navigate treacherous and dangerous conditions to save the lives of 12 young soccer players and their coach from a flooded cave in Thailand. Richard's diving career spans across 30 years and in 2019, Richard was named Australian of the Year for his role in the Thai rescue mission. Today's conversation focuses on how to rewrite your relationship with fear, navigating the waves of grief and believing that when there is a will, there is a way. When I was in Thailand and I saw this international global effort pursuing this incredibly clear and obvious outcome, which was the lives of 13 young people, wasn't it incredible the way the world community came together and put aside all their difference? We had Chinese divers, European divers, divers from every country, all there with the same goal in mind. It was just about helping these kids in Thailand. And why is it that we can't do that for the other 300 and something days of the year when we don't share that goal? I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is a life of greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Dr. Richard Harris is the author of the kids' book, Alfie the Brave. In its essence, this conversation is a reminder that life itself is an absolute miracle. My hope is that this episode shines a light on the limitless capabilities we hold within us and how only we carry the keys to unlocking its power. Dr. Richard Harry Harris, I should call you, as I know Harry's what you like to be known as. Take us back to your younger years because I'd like to know how you got into medicine and cave diving and what your journey was that led you to be able to do all these amazing things? I suppose there's been two parallel paths in my life. One revolved around the ocean and trying to immerse myself in it at every opportunity and the other one was just a love of biology and science and the natural world, yeah. which led me into medicine, although not directly so. I actually assumed I was always going to be a marine biologist, which is something that I did Ah. apply for and get accepted into. But actually my cousin was at James Cook University in Queensland doing marine biology in second year and he he actually talked me out of it. He said no one can get a job but it seems pretty futile at that point in time in the in the early 80s. So I actually decided not to do it, which perhaps suggests that I wasn't as passionate about it as I thought and applied for veterinary science. And I didn't get enough marks to be a dog doctor, so I had to settle for being a human doctor. So here I am. And it was just one of those quirks of the universities that, you know, that year that 
you know, veterinary science. I mean, I was kind of borderline in terms of my academic performance. I didn't, um, I struggled a bit at school and perhaps didn't attend or apply myself as well as I could have. So I missed out on veterinary science, but I got into medicine. And I thought, well, that'll do. So cave diving, how did that come about? Yeah, so it started with my love of the ocean as a snorkeler and then I did some spearfishing as a young boy and then uh, it was pointed out to me by a family friend who was a marine biologist that, you know, murdering all these beautiful reef fish and then not eating them wasn't the best uh, thing to do. So that was a sort of a revelation at the age of about 12 years old and so I started to take a real interest in the fish life and started to take photographs instead of shooting them with a spear gun and um, I, I think it was around about 1975, which is showing my age a little bit, but uh, I went to see Jaws at the drive-in cinema and for <laughs> me that was the end of that ocean love for at least a year. You know, I couldn't put a toe back in the water like so many people my age. And it was perhaps a little bit after that that I realised that actually there are other opportunities for going underwater and they are the freshwater caves and sinkholes of the Mount Gambier region in South Australia. And so when I was at university, a bunch of us did our cave diving course just for looking looking for a different experience in the water and I just fell in love with it. I thought, this is really cool, very amazing. That's incredible. Tell me, what is it about the cave diving that really wins your heart over? Well, there's a lot of aspects of it, but um, starting from the most fundamental things, you know, it's never rough. I never, I do get a bit seasick. So mm. going out on boats, I don't necessarily find all that comfortable. And also because you're at the mercy of the elements, especially if you want to go a long way offshore to dive a shipwreck, you find that a lot of times you get cancelled and you don't get to dive. Whereas uh. in the caves, essentially it's always calm. It's yes. always, the conditions are always stable. And in many ways, I found it a much safer environment to dive in because you're not at the mercy of the currents or the or the weather changing while you're underwater and, and, and relying upon a boat to be waiting for you when you come back up. The second thing is that the caves, the caves themselves are very beautiful, especially the clarity of the water in most of the, the sites that we dive is spectacular. I mean, the clearest tropical water that you can possibly imagine is filthy compared to a, a crystal clear cave, a freshwater mm. cave, where you can literally see as far as the sun is shining or your lights will, will travel. Wow. And and as you start to spend more and more time in caves, you start to look at the geology and all the other sciences that are available to see in caves, like the hydrology, like where does this water come from? Why is it here? Why has it formed a cave in this place? But not over the next paddock. The biology is amazing. These little creatures that live in there that exist on almost no food or substrate, but they've they've got their own little ecosystem happening in there. Lots of different stuff. And then, as a photographer and image maker, I just love producing mm. beautiful images to showcase these places to people like yourself who can't really understand why you'd want to immerse yourself <laughs> in that environment. But when you now you talk about it, I'm thinking, oh yes, within the caves, it would be so beautiful. So it does yeah. make sense. And and it's actually easier to swim through them by and yes. large than it is to walk or climb through them because gravity is never has never been my friend. I've never been particularly athletic. So just to float through these caves is really easy for me. I really enjoy it. Yes. And you came to the spotlight because you have these two amazing skills which are so unique. You're a cave diver and you're also an anaesthetist. And for people that don't know 
there were 12 boys and their coach who were trapped in a cave in Thailand a few years ago. And that cave ended up getting flooded. They were there just playing and and they got trapped. Can you tell us the story about how that all came about, how you got the call? Yeah, well, I'll try and make it brief because it is um, a, a long and complicated story. But in a nutshell, you know, I'd been working for the last 15 years or so in volunteer cave rescue in Australia, and I'd actually been developing a capability to rescue someone through a flooded part of a cave mm. and assuming really that it might be one of us or our friends who, you know, maybe got injured in a in a cave and we'd have to dive back out to get back to the surface. So I started thinking about, well, how would you actually do that if someone had a broken leg or had a head injury or, or worse, you know, how would you get them safely back out, back out through the water? Um, so with that in mind, I'd started talking to other people around the world with a similar interest. And it's a pretty small community, as you might imagine, the the global cave diving <laughs> and particularly at the exploration end of cave diving, there's not that many people around the world. So, you know, thanks to the internet and so forth, we're, we're quite connected. And so when the balloon went up in Thailand and these 12 boys and their 25-year-old coach went into this cave for a bit of an outing, as you said, they were just out there for an adventure, and um, suddenly the, the monsoons arrived a week early in terms of the season and they got trapped by the tunnel flooding with water behind them. And when they turned around to come back out, suddenly they realised they couldn't escape and, in fact, the water came up so quickly they had to run back into the cave mm. until they found this little bit of high ground about two and a half kilometres inside the cave and that's where they sat alone until the two British divers finally found them, which was ten days later. I knew some of the divers who were over there early on, a guy called Ben Raymanitz, who was a Belgian expat there, and then later on these British guys, Rick Stanton and John Valanthan, who I knew as well, especially Rick. Uh, we were already quite good friends for, from some other expeditions we'd been on. And so I guess I was almost pestering all these people saying, well, look, we've got this capability in Australia and um, if you need some more divers, then we're more than happy to come over and that's essentially how it happened. And there were the Thai Navy SEALs were also there helping. But what I found was so incredible is cave diving is such a skill and it is that it is so specific to just cave diving that even though these Navy SEALs are so incredible at what they do, they didn't quite have the ability that you cave divers had. Can you take us through why that was? Well, cave diving is a very specific type of, of skill and moving comfortably and safely through that environment uh, because it's not always large tunnels with crystal clear water. It can become very tightly restricted tunnels with zero visibility and you need to be able to navigate in and out of those places safely without becoming disorientated or lost or without running out of air uh, or without panicking. And, you know, just, you know, that natural fear of being trapped underground, underwater with a finite amount of gas to breathe is obviously a very a very real primal fear. So if you get a bit stuck, you can feel your anxiety levels come up very, very quickly and you need to be able to control that. And the way to control that is by incremental experience and by good training and having reliable equipment. And so that is why cave diver training is very specific. The equipment's very unique and specific, uh, lots of redundancy with all the gas supplies and lights and, and so forth. And no other type of diving has that overlap with that with that training or environment. And so, sadly, history is littered 
um, unfortunately, with with the bodies of, of divers who have been very expert in their own space, whether they're police or commercial divers or military divers, who have ventured into caves assuming that their skill set would cover off on that environment and they've become unstuck. So uh, it's a very, very safe sport if you know what you're doing mm-hmm. and you're properly trained and you have the right gear. And the Thai Navy SEALs, I mean, as you can imagine, they are an extremely elite military unit in Thailand as they are all, all around the world. And, you know, super fit, super highly trained, young, courageous guys, but not trained for this environment. And sadly, as as we heard, one of the former Navy SEALs lost his life early on in that cave. And from that point on, all the military and police divers were withdrawn from the diving operation and only these middle-aged nerds from around the world with this strange interest for cave diving were allowed to continue in in the cave. Was it a struggle, especially for Rick and John, them wanting to help out and then the resistance from the Thai government thinking that the SEALs would be able to do it themselves? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the initial response from the Thais, especially one of the commanders of the Navy SEALs, was exactly as you would expect that, you know, he looks these these blokes up and down, you know, and they don't look anything particularly special. And cave divers often are a bit of a shabby lot when it comes to our appearance. You know, the a lot of our gear is homemade and, you know, Rick and John are, are the, uh, the best of the best when it comes to, you know, looking like a lot of their stuff's come out of the shed, which it exactly <laughs> has. So, you know, you can picture them standing next to this elite force of Thai Navy SEALs and they would have looked just like a disaster waiting to happen. But... They, uh, you know, in our circles, Rick and John would be widely considered to be the the rock stars of our little sport. They really are extraordinarily capable and experienced. So, you know, when I heard they were there, I thought, you know, if anyone can find these kids, whether the kids are are dead or alive, Mm. you know, it'll be these two guys. So, you know, I was very pleased to hear they were on board. And so when Rick and John found the boys, I know you weren't there, but knowing them, how was that moment? Well, you know, they're very practical guys. Um, John's maybe a little more emotional than Rick and I think John was absolutely euphoric, the fact that they had they'd found these boys alive. But mm. you can, you know, talking to them both afterwards, it didn't take long for both of them to suddenly think, well, actually, you know, essentially we're still looking at dead children because yeah. whilst we've found them alive, there's still no possible way that we're going to get them out of this cave. So they were pretty almost more shocked, I think, in a way that they'd found these kids alive because it's like, what now? What are, what are we going to do? Yeah. Um, and having met these happy kids who look pretty good, that they just must have felt this dreadful weight of responsibility. So how many days had they been in the cave when Rick and John found them? Ten, just, just on ten days, I think. So ten days they're in the cave. They had no food. That's correct. And they were drinking the water from the cave. Yeah, there was mixed reports about, you know, licking the walls and catching drips off the stalactites yeah. in there. But when I went into that that part of the cave at a similar time of year, the following year, there was no sign of any moisture at all coming from the roof or the, or the walls. So I'm sure they were just surviving by drinking the cave water yes. as it flowed past the bottom of their hill. And is it true that their coach taught them to meditate whilst they were in the cave? Yeah, as far as I know. I mean, I've been back twice to Thailand and had a chance to talk with some of the boys and the coach and it's always been through an interpreter, so it's hard to be 100% clear. But, yeah, that's certainly what I understand. The coach had been a monk for a period of time himself. 
So he was in a unique position to really uh, nurture those boys, help them relax and meditate, do their breathing exercises and, and also keep them busy. For example, they were, I mean, you could tell they were survivors just from the way they conducted themselves right from the, the get-go. And I'm sure they had some very dark times, you know, literally and metaphorically mm. in the in the cave. But but you could tell they were working to survive. For example, they were, they'd started digging a little tunnel at the top of the hill to escape. Like Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And when I saw this tunnel, it's it's about three body lengths. Wow. Long, which is a bit of a thing to dig. Yeah. I mean, they only had about two kilometres to go and they would have been out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. But doesn't that show you as well what a wonderful thing meditation is and how important it is? And you would know this from being an anaesthetist as well as being a cave diver how important the use of your mind is. Knowing that now, what do you think about how we as people use our mind in situations of panic or just day-to-day? Oh, it's enormously important, especially in a crisis situation like that. And as I mentioned, I've I've always been a little bit interested in in survival or or particularly, you know, why do some people survive and some people yeah. don't when they're when they're thrust into the same situation? And the classic example is the lifeboat. You know, your, your ship goes down and there's ten of you in a lifeboat. They say that you can pretty much tell within the first hour which people will survive at least the longest. I mean, no one can live without food and drink forever, but you know, there will be people who designate themselves as survivors by their early actions, and that means doing taking active stock of their situation rather than curling up in the corner and you know, woe is me, and waiting for rescue, they actually make plans to live and that means taking inventory of what they've got in the life raft and, okay, uh, we need to ration what we've got and we need to start trying to catch fish or we need to be prepared to signal and, you know, that sort of stuff um, which shows that their mindset is one of survival, not Mm. of victim and I think that's the key. I think there's also something in it, it just reminds me of um, Holocaust survivor it's passed now, Victor Frankl, and he spoke about having hope and how the same in those death camps, there were people that had that hope and that will to live and then others who had given up hope. And I think that is also such an important thing, having that will. It sounds so cliche, but even just having those positive thoughts as hard as they are, that leads to hope which gets people through. And there's there's a definite relationship between attitude and survival or or maybe not even attitude but looking after yourself mentally as well as physically. For example, I know that if I've worked lots of long shifts and I'm very tired, you get run down, you're definitely more susceptible to getting colds and uh, coughs and flus and things. So that's a simple example of how, you know, looking after your your well-being mentally and, you know, has a direct effect on your immune, immune system, for example. And whilst, um, you know, back to the lifeboat example, you can't eke out more than a few days yeah. without water, however positive you are, you know, you've got to get to the, to the limits before you can hope to push them. Exactly. And clearly some people will die before they get to that physical limitation of survival. And we see this, unfortunately, we see this a bit in, in diving fatalities where people will die with air in their tanks I mean, I'd like to think that I will continue to solve problems until at least I'm taking my last breath underwater if I got stuck or... But, you know, once that panic rises, you can die from panic alone. There's no question. Yeah, I mean, you lose all rational thought. 
people will spit their regulator out. They'll do things that are not conducive with with survival if if the stresses are sufficient. So you have to maintain that, um, you know, everyone will panic in the end. The moment you start breathing water, you're going to start to panic. No, No one's immune to that, I'm sure. But what I think you can do by being well-trained and highly experienced, for example, in cave diving, is you can stave off panic until the very last moment. And while there's life, literally there's there's hope. So that's the, the, the way I approach my cave diving at least. Beautifully said. You got the call from the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Take us through what happened. Yeah, I got a call from Canberra and... Um, they said, oh, we, we, there's a thing going on in Thailand and we'd like you to consider going over there to assist. And it was quite funny to me that this sounded like an original idea. Yeah, been, I was going to say, you've been, been like wanting to do it the whole time. <laughs> we've been harassing as many people as possible for the last two weeks to get ourselves over there. So, yeah, anyway, um, I said, well, yes, that's a very good idea. So I'd like to go over and see what we can do to help. And... Um, because I was part of the Australian Medical Assistance Team already, which is a government, you know, body for crisis management in overseas countries, in particular medical assistance, obviously, I was already on the books as as a documented government-type volunteer, I suppose. And I said, but, of course, I need my friend Craig Challen to come with me because, um, you know, he's someone that I just have 100% confidence in and 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 I was thinking that if I if I do end up doing some crazy underwater anesthetic plan which at this stage I must say I had no intention of doing but if if I was to do that I just thought it's very important that I have someone else reliable in the cave to help look after me in the cave yeah. while I'm thinking about this other stuff but also just to bounce ideas off and I knew Craig can always be relied upon to give me a pretty robust feedback yes. if I'm talking talking BS so so there was a bit of pushback from Canberra initially. Well, who is this Craig Challen? We don't have him on our books. And so I made up a few sort of white lies about his involvement with government uh, services in various ways. And in the end, they, they agreed. Um, so that was, that was great that we could both get to go over there. And so who suggested doing the anaesthetic and how did that come about? Well, that idea was entirely Rick Stanton's and he had put that to me in a conversation before Canberra rang me. Yes. And I was emphatic that that was the worst idea I'd ever heard. I said, Rick, basically I said, if look, you don't have to be a cave diver or an anaesthetist to realise that if you try and render someone unconscious and submerge them for, for what will be a three-hour dive out of this cave, then they will not be alive when you come out the other end. And, look, I had a 100 reasons that I could list why those children would die if we went down that path. But I reiterated, well, you know, I'm certainly happy to come over and perhaps as a doctor I can go to the end of the cave, I can sit with these kids and look after them while you guys come up with a better plan than that one. So that was the basis, I guess, that we were we were invited over. Although in Rick's mind he was always planning to get me to do this anaesthetic because he had had the benefit of being there for so long and seen that nothing else was going to work to get these yes. children out. So when was it that you were convinced that that was the only way? It was only after I had dived the cave myself and seen the kids in their environment and realising that they couldn't survive in there for very much longer anyway because of the, you know, the falling oxygen levels, the 
increasingly putrid environment they were living with, the lack of food. We just couldn't get enough food to sustain them yeah. uh, into the cave. And also looking at all the other things that were in place, all the water pumping options, the drilling, all these other ideas, especially in the context that the meteorologists told us we probably just had three to five days before the monsoons came back in force, in which case there would be no further diving in the cave until the end of the monsoon season in all likelihood. So we had three days to get these kids out and I knew that nothing else was going to succeed and it came down to this very simple decision, either I get back on a plane and fly back to Adelaide and leave these kids to die or we give this thing a go, which I, I still believed would have a 100% mortality rate. But sometimes I think just doing something is easier than doing nothing. Mm. And the idea of walking away from these children was impossible to me. I just, I could not have done that. So you just got to give something a crack. And um, I think the thing that got me over the line was in my own mind, I, I could counsel myself by saying, well, at least when these children come out, when they die, they'll be asleep when that happens. Oh, which which is pretty poor justification for a plan, but yeah. but you know that just seemed to me the right answer rather than starvation or exposure. The Australian government said to you that if they do come out of there and they're not alive, we've got to get you out of Thailand fast. Can you explain why that was? Yeah, they perceived, and and they only said this to me on the morning of the first rescue day when I was literally walking into the cave, but. Um, one of them came up to me and said that, you know, if if a child dies, it's not impossible that I could end up in the Thai judicial system. And I, f- I felt immediately a little bit sceptical about that because, I, you know, you think you're over there as a volunteer, mm. you're trying to do something good for these people, you know, as if they're going to turn around and then, um, you know, charge you with medical manslaughter or, or something similar if, if the outcome is bad. But do you know what? I think it was actually quite a smart thing to be alerted to because, you know, in the Thai government, it's a military junta that runs the place. It's not particularly forgiving of poor decision makers, I suspect. And it may well be that they would be looking for a scapegoat if this all went pear-shaped. So maybe it was a a smart thing to be uh, concerned about. But to be honest, I had no bandwidth at all for thinking about it because I was just, my brain was so full of this crazy idea that we were about to embark (laughs) on. So I just said, look, if that if something happens, I'll just have to trust you guys to get me out of Thailand. But in fact, they they went on to get diplomatic immunity for Craig and I shortly afterwards, which is Yay. pretty unheard of for non for non diplomats. That's that's an extraordinary thing, apparently. That is extraordinary. And tell me, Harry, you then went and took your ketamine and anaesthetized the children. What I'd like you to explain is why ketamine. Yeah, so I had a, you know, on the plane on the way over, I was jotting down a list of all the drugs that I thought I could use to anaesthetise the boys. And one by one, you know, they all got crossed off very quickly and it really left ketamine as the only possible answer. And the reasons for that are primarily probably threefold. Firstly, that you can give it as an intramuscular injection. You don't have to titrate it through an intravenous cannula. Oh, yes. And I was aware that, you know, these kids will be in the mud in the back of a cave and putting drips in the kids would not be particularly sanitary and also intravenous drug administration has a much narrower window for under or overdosing and it tends to last a shorter duration. 
Whereas if you stick it in the muscle, it gets released from the muscle quite slowly, lasts for a longer time, but it tends not to have the peaks and troughs that you would get from an intravenous injection, which makes it safer. Yeah. Um, secondly, that the ketamine is an inherently safer drug than many of the other general anaesthetic drugs that we inject. In other words, it's more forgiving if you get the dose a bit wrong because uh, um, some of the common general anaesthetic drugs that we use, if you give significantly too much, you know, the patient's blood pressure can disappear. They certainly stop breathing, which yes. is a, a desired effect in some cases. They also lose a lot of heat because they their blood vessels in their skin dilate a bit like drinking alcohol, you know, you get a red face and you lose all the heat very quickly, which is, you know, why you don't give people alcohol if they're they're cold. Um, so there are lots of other reasons why the other ones seem like a bad idea, uh, whereas ketamine allows breathing to be maintained pretty normally actually and also blood pressure is much more stable with ketamine. So there are a whole host of, you know, medical reasons why ketamine was the only solution. The problem is... Whilst I've given thousands of doses of ketamine intravenously, I've very rarely given it intramuscularly and I couldn't find any, any kind of literature which, which discussed repeated intramuscular doses to maintain anaesthesia. So it was completely unprecedented use of the drug, fairly off-label, I would suggest, at the back of a cave. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, honestly, I couldn't think of any, any other solution that, that would be safe, especially in non-anaesthetist hands because I also realised yes. that I couldn't take each one of these boys out myself because there just wouldn't be time mm. in that three-day window to get them all out. So I had to teach the other divers how to administer the ketamine so that we could get at least four of the kids each day. Now, to ask someone to maintain anaesthesia by intravenous injection would be very, very dangerous, especially since they couldn't see or monitor their patients in mm. any way. We just had to trust that the ketamine was safe and was working. So, yeah, it came down to that one choice. And do you take the drugs from Australia or do you get them in Thailand? No, I figured it was quite a bad idea to take ketamine on an aeroplane yeah. into a country <laughs> like Thailand. You know, just, that. Uh, <laughs> I had to, in case the message hadn't come through that I was on my way and that they arrested me at the border, I would have had a very quick uh, drive to the Changi prison. Yes, or, you don't no, want not that. Changi, where is it? Bangkok Hilton. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I, um, I warned the Australian government that I wouldn't be bringing anything, but I, I asked them to get this list of drugs or a short list of drugs ready for me um, while I made the decision on my way over there. It's so interesting to hear that about ketamine as well because we always know it as like a horse tranquilizer, or people take it as a party drug or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, when I was doing research for this interview, I found it interesting to know that it was ketamine that you actually used and the reasons why are, yeah, fascinating to hear. What would you use that for in everyday anaesthesia? Well, you would think it sounds so perfect that you might use it for everything, but there's a couple of really bad downsides to ketamine. Yeah. And one one of them is for people with uh, heart disease because your pulse rate and your blood pressure tend to trend upwards in, in all patients. So if you've got a slightly dicky ticker, then um, having that high blood pressure and fast heart rate is actually quite bad for your heart in that setting. The other thing that precludes it from common use is this uh, dysphoric effects that you can get from it. So bad, basically a bad trip, which is why people talk about being stuck in the K-hole when they take it mm. in nightclubs. So 
I have heard from um, some people that I've met who have used it recreationally that their first dose was a pleasant experience. The second dose was an absolute nightmare. Oh, my god! So they, they get this sort of locked-in feeling like they're trapped in this tunnel. They can't really move or escape it, but they're just whatever's happening in your head, you are, you are living with it until the drug wears off. So oh, wow. it's, a bit like, it's a bit like LSD and these psychedelic drugs. It, you know, when it goes bad, it's a pretty dreadful experience and you can have horrible, horrible nightmares with it. Wow. So, you know, if you come in for a knee arthroscopy and, and um, you know, we do that to you, you're not going to be coming no. back, are you? And I've spoken to some soldiers who have had battlefield injuries and been given ketamine. And they've actually said to me, I wish that I just, they left me to put up with the pain because the ketamine was so unpleasant. It was worse than the gunshot. Wow. Um, So, you know, pros and cons. So did any of the Thai boys experience that when they came out of the other side? It's a less common side effect, I think, in small kids, which is good. So I was very worried about have I given these kids some kind of dreadful psychological injury. So I followed them up very carefully with one of the Thai doctors who I was working with over there and not a single one of them had any recollection of the experience after they had their first injection and nor did they have any kind of bad experience, you know, bad dreams or anything. So That's that was, amazing. That was pleasing to hear. Now, we have got ways of mitigating those side effects but it means other drugs and that, that makes things a bit more complicated. So you swam over to them and the first boy went on his way. Can you take us through that? Yeah, so when, I mean, I went in there with Craig on the first day to see the kids and, um, of course, there were four Thai Navy SEALs in there with them by this stage, one of whom was a doctor, Dr Puck, an amazing guy and actually really nice to have a medical colleague in there to share some of the worry with. And Dr Puck also spoke quite good English, so I could explain through him to the children what the plan was for the next day if we went ahead with this. And so they were they were prepared, I think, or I hope, you know, for what we were about to embark on the following day. So the next day, myself and the four British divers, John and Rick, Chris and Jason, went through to Chamber 9, so about a three-hour swim into there. And then armed with our ketamine, we got the first four kids ready, dressed in wetsuits, One by one, they came down their muddy hill to me and I would give them the ketamine injection. They'd go off to sleep and then with the help of the British divers, we'd put the full face mask on, which obviously seals all the way around their face because you can't hold a mouthpiece Mm. in between your teeth if you're going to be asleep. We strap a cylinder of uh, oxygen to their chest and then roll them over face first into the water, make sure there's no water getting into the mask, make sure they're breathing okay from the regulator in the full face mask. And then we had also decided to tie their hands behind their backs and tie their feet together because we wanted them to be as streamlined as possible to for the British diver to push them through the tight parts of the cave. And also in case they suddenly woke up underwater that if they did start to panic, they wouldn't be able to reach up and pull their mask off, which obviously would be the end of them. Or more importantly, in my mind, do the same to one of the British divers because we couldn't afford to lose, you know, one of the lives of the British guys. And uh, then one British diver would take one anaesthetised boy all the way out through the cave and we had other divers positioned along the way guys like Craig and um, some other British divers and the, and the so-called Euro divers from around different parts of the world. And they were placed along the cave in the, in the air bells between the, the mm. diving sections, 
and they would help get the boy through that part of the cave, help the British diver top up the anaesthetic if that was required until they got out to Chamber 3, which marked the end of the diving part of the cave. But there's still quite a long section of dry cave rescue from that point on, about an hour and a half to get out of there, I believe. How many hours was it in total from when the boys started to when they got them out? Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but three to four hours, I think. Yeah. So we got a bit faster each day. We got more efficient and got better at it. Is there a stage where I know that you had to take one of the boys out, you helped with that, there's any panic or just dread? Plenty of dread, no panic because panic is death, so we're not allowed to do that. But plenty of dread. I mean, you know, that first day, that that it's very hard to describe that feeling of pushing the first boy's face into that water. The closest thing I can describe it as would be like drowning kittens. I mean, not that I've done that, but, you know, that sense of this is so wrong, what we're doing here, you know, pushing an unconscious child's head underwater just you can't describe how appalling that feels. And also there's something terribly wrong about securing someone's hands, you know, mm, like in handcuffs. Yes, yes. And the morality of it all was just appalling. And having said that, though, how amazing the human brain is that you can become not comfortable but certainly accustomed to doing such dreadful things. And by the third day... You know, I was comfortable enough with it and I guess with the knowledge that these kids were surviving that, you know, I started to look at it with more of a scientific interest almost, you know, observing the way they were responding to the anaesthetic or the immersion and, you know, the physiology of it all. In a way that I think that explains a lot about how people endure terrible things, whether it's in a concentration camp or going through what people in Ukraine are suffering at the moment, how... Um, you can adapt so that you can survive in terrible circumstances. But equally, it explains to me how people are capable of doing horrific things in some of those similar circumstances. If you look over the other fence, uh, look over the fence in the concentration camp, because I presume most of those people weren't evil. They somehow just went down that path and went right instead of left at some point and yeah, you know, I don't think any of us really know how we'll behave or or perform if those perfect circumstances are set up for us to be allowed that choice for good or bad or, you know, good or evil. So, you know, it was a slightly uncomfortable look into my own humanity, I think, at one point. I know you're not a religious person. I don't think that you even need to follow religion to do this, but especially when you're having that sense of dread and you mentioned how hard it was to push the face of the first child down into the water. You know, is there a prayer you say? Is there someone you talk to in your head? Any guidance? I mean, I'd be praying to God, to every person under the sun. I'm not religious, but something in that higher knowing, if anyone can help you, then this is the time. It's funny, a friend of mine used to say to me in the operating theatre, there's no atheists in foxholes, which is a good expression. But um, no, I didn't didn't have any of that that sort of uh, need to look outside of myself. I kind of, I I think 
because I've worked a lot in this critical care environment and sometimes in unusual locations doing aeromedical retrieval work at road accidents and things like this, you, you do become accustomed to not, no longer being surprised by what's in front of you almost. And um, I was able to put each of those kids into this little work box in my head and say, well, this is just my next patient. Okay, this is a slightly unusual environment, but the same as I would for any critically ill or injured patient, just say to myself, you just have to do the best you can for the patient in front of you. And you can't think about the waiting room full of kids up the hill there. You just have to look after the, the patient in front of you. And when this one's been dealt with and sorted out, then you turn your attention to the next one. And that's the only way to get through a day like that, I think. Yes. Um, and, you know, I picture the GPs with 100 patients out in the waiting room. They're already an hour behind. But when that patient in front of you tells you about some life-changing problem or, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their life, you can't say, well, I'm sorry, time's up. You've just got to look after the one in front of you. And I think that's the way you sort of get through those days in medicine and I'm sure in many other spheres of endeavour all the boys came out alive. There was one point, though, that one of your cave diving colleagues did get quite overwhelmed within the cave. Can you tell us about that? In the film 13 Lives, it shows this episode where uh, one of the British divers, Chris Jewell, has lost the, the guideline, which is obviously, you know, a critical part of cave diving is you've always got this rope or string to follow out of the cave. And Nowhere is it more important when the visibility in the cave is absolutely zero. So you have no way of finding your way out yeah. of that cave unless you've got your hand on the rope. And Chris lost the rope because he was trying to do three things at once, basically hold the rope, look after the child and find his way through a particularly difficult little hole in the rock. And so when he lost the rope, he got turned around 180 degrees and accidentally started coming back into the cave and oh. reappeared back in the same air bell that he'd just left, but he didn't recognise it. So he thought he'd gone off to the side and found a new undiscovered air bell. So, and, you know, naturally he thought, well, no one will ever find me in here. And not only that, but I don't know how to get back to the, the path, you know, the route out. And, it, and I've got a boy who's going to wake up from his anaesthetic any minute. So, you know, it was a very, very frightening moment for Chris. And I came through into that chamber um, a short time afterwards and Chris and I said g'day to each other. He was obviously very happy to realise that, A, he wasn't lost and, B, there was another diver, especially me, I guess, to help him with the child, you know, to re-anesthetise the child and so forth. But he was in no way distressed or, you know, freaking out. He was he was still very calm, very under control, but he was pale and he'd had a real a real fright, as, as you can imagine. So, yeah, I just want to um, kind of correct that small thing in the Hollywood version yes. of this that, you know, where Chris is virtually hysterical in the film, he was certainly in no way, uh, you know, he's a very, very tough and competent guy in the cave. But anyway, um, yeah, so I, I sort of saw this in two ways. One, I can help Chris, let him just gather his thoughts and take a moment, catch his breath, and then he can come out under his own steam a minute later. In the meantime, I'll take this boy from him to help him out. But I also saw a slightly selfish interest here that this is a chance for me to actually do this part of the rescue which up until then I hadn't had an opportunity to do and I was quite keen on the idea just to finish this whole episode of my life by taking this boy out through the last part of the cave. Now had I known what was about to happen to me I wouldn't have been quite so excited about that idea because essentially the same problem Chris faced happened to me because something must have changed or perhaps had changed with the way the, way the rope was sitting. Mm. 
because I found it impossible to get through this restriction in the cave and hold on to the rope. So I accidentally left it, lost it as well. But armed with the knowledge of what Chris had described, I managed to keep moving forwards in the in the correct direction and then relocated the rope. So I was lucky, but only because Chris had already shared in detail Aww. what had happened to him. So it was nice to take that that boy out. It did get my heart rate up considerably for that you know minute or so where I'd lost the rope. But yeah, it was um, all's well that ends well, I suppose. Your story is like the opposite of a perfect storm. It's it's a perfect sunshine where even though it looks like everything's going to be so full on and so hard, everything pieced together in a way that made it work so well, even though you thought that it wouldn't. You thought you'd be taking out dead children. A hundred percent. Actually, a hundred percent, yeah. And... You know, we had discussed amongst the cave divers that when inevitably these children die in the cave underwater, we must always just keep moving forwards because there's no point turning back or even if one of the children's in trouble, there's no point turning back because no one can help you. You know, you're on your own with that boy. You have to move forward to where the next lot of divers are. And if the child comes out dead, they still need to come out to be, you know, returned to their parents. You know, we we can't leave them in the cave. So that that sort of helped us that having thought and thought that through and discussed it out loud, that I think helped all the divers just move forward and, and keep going because it'd be very easy to look for an excuse to stop and, and maybe pause and rest or we just knew we had to get them out. What was the deal with Elon Musk? Good question. <laughs> What was the deal with Elon Musk? What happened with that? He wanted to, what what did he want to get a submarine in there? And then didn't he say some unkind things? And what happened with that? Look, I'm going to be a little bit cautious uh, talking about Elon since there's already been one lawsuit between him (laughs) and one of the, the cavers. But my understanding is that he turned up with this idea for a like a submarine, a a steel tube or an alloy tube of some kind, which he thought that we could take through to where the kids were and we could put a child inside it and then seal it back up again and bring the child out inside the tube, which is not a terrible idea. And and Rick and John, I think, had the first meeting with Elon from the cave diver's point of view, and they said, well, Elon, it's just... It's just a, a dry tube, which is what we were already using to take food and so forth into the yes. into the kids. So there's an obvious problem here, and that is that if you put a child inside it, they're going to run out of oxygen mm. and their CO2 levels will climb very high. So it's just no good to us for this purpose. So Elon, I think, was a little bit miffed by being told that his invention wasn't fit for purpose. But to his credit, he did take it away. I think his engineers started working on those solutions and he represented it on the second rescue day um, with those issues actually addressed. It had an oxygen supply and and so forth and it addressed the, the buoyancy problems and so forth. But by then, of course, we had a solution that we knew was working. And secondly, his submarine, if we call it that, still wouldn't have worked because it was was physically too big to fit through some of the restrictions or the little S-bends in the cave. Now, it all ended on a bad note, in my view, partly because Elon was tweeting a lot while he was on site and I looked through those tweets afterwards and there was a lot of stuff about Elon and seemed to be the focus didn't seem to really be on the kids. It seemed to be about, you know, Elon and no one wanting his help and he was there to save the day. Yeah. 
And then, unfortunately, one of the, the Yorkshiremen who ended up in the legal situation with Elon told him to stick his submarine where the sun don't shine and that's when Elon called him the pedo guy from Thailand and so, yeah, it all yeah. deteriorated pretty pretty quickly. But, look, from the, the bystanders' point of view, myself and the other cave divers, we thought it was all rather hilarious, to be honest. <laughs> Something to laugh about. Yeah. So you get the boys out and you're the hero of Thailand and the, and the world, especially Australia, and you find out some awful news that your dad has passed away. How were you able to balance those emotions? And something I find really interesting, and we talk about it a bit on the podcast, is the fact that it is possible to have two emotions at the same time, to be in so much joy because of the fact that you've saved so many lives, but the grief of knowing that someone you love so much has passed away. Can you take us through that? I mean, you make a very good point that it is possible to feel those two extremes of emotion at the same time. That first evening when I got out of the cave at 7pm or 8pm, whatever time it was, you know, we walked out of that cave to thousands of people clapping and cheering and applauding. And to be part of that effort was a feeling I will never forget. And, you know, we walked out of the cave and people were lining up either side to make this kind of um, path for everyone emerging from the, from the cave to walk out. And every single one of those people wanted to shake your hand and pat you on the back. And, in fact, I remember the next day thinking, geez, my hand's sore in my back. Oh, what have I done to myself? And then I remembered all these people slapping and clapping and, and, and then we'd get on the It wasn't the cave end. diving for the no, last couple of days. Cave, it was, cave diving was fine. <laughs> and we'd get on the end of that line and do the same for the next people to come out. It was just an extraordinary thing. And the noise of the clapping was amazing. Anyway... And then um, we were so exhausted. I mean, the overwhelming feeling at that point in time was exhaustion and, and we ha- I think we had like two two beers and then everyone just said, oh, I've got to go to bed because we'd had about two hours sleep a night for four or five wow. days. And I got back to my hotel room and I rang my wife as I'd been doing every night to tell her that I was safe and everything was fine and I guess I was pretty pumped up and full of adrenaline and I was babbling away and finally I, I drew breath and she just burst into tears and said, look, your dad's died. I felt like, you know, that it's impossible that something so sad could happen on this day. And it sounds like he'd died pretty much about the time the last boy came out of the cave, which, again, I don't read anything particular into that, but for me it's a really beautiful coincidence. I was a wreck. You know, my dad was a very, very special person to me. And, you know, uh, best friend, absolute mentor in life, everything that I'm proud of being comes from him. So I just, I I couldn't believe this had happened. But then by the next day, I had come to realise what a blessing that this thing was because Dad had a terrible cancer diagnosis Mm. that he was living with and he was actually pretty okay at the moment. But the end for him looked awful. You know, the the possible ways this might finish for him were not at all good. And so for him to just drop dead, out of the blue, unexpected, probably unrelated, was an absolute blessing in my opinion. You know, 88 years old, he'd lived a great life. He himself, as many elderly people had been saying, you know, I've had enough, This, I'm ready when the time comes. So 
he he would have had no regrets. And I just think, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, you know, we are all going to die mm. and the best you can hope for for your loved ones is a good death. Yes. And so I thought to be overly sad about this event is in a way selfish because it's the greatest thing that could have happened to him. And I found in that cause to celebrate both things and um, so celebrate I did. Yeah, I just, I, I thought everyone expected me to go home, jump on a plane and go home, but I thought, no, I've got to stay here for a few days and debrief and celebrate with all these people that I've been working shoulder to shoulder with, most of whom I don't even know their names, and, you know, just kind of sort through all of this stuff that's just happened. And I'm so glad I did because it was absolutely the best way to debrief and to celebrate both these events that had happened. Was your dad following everything that was happening? Yeah, my he'd just literally gone into a nursing home about a week before. So my sisters yeah. and my wife were going in there taking him information, newspaper clippings and things. And he had a little bit of short-term memory trouble starting, but he he understood what was what was going on. So I'm sure he would have been very proud. It's an interesting thing because it just teaches you what we know already about the cycle of life. You come in and then you go and the fact that these boys managed to survive, yet another one passes, and also the appreciation that life changes in an instant. Our lives mm. can change in an instant from a diagnosis one day out of nowhere to a sudden death to God knows what. And I wonder for you, going through what you have, how do you appreciate life now? I don't think my views on any of this stuff you know, existential, metaphysical, whatever, has really changed because, you know, I've been in medicine at the pointy end for so long that I've seen how frail life can be. Yeah. And even from a personal experience, you know, we all have had a friend who one day feels perfect, the next day gets diagnosed with something dreadful and then very soon their life is is finished, especially when they're young. I mean, that's particularly hard. So... Yeah, I think it's just reaffirmed what I already thought about how precious um, life is, especially quality, not quantity. Certainly my father was always, he was a big advocate of voluntary assisted dying. He was always very passionate about the right to, to choose and very keen to make sure that he didn't live in a state that he would be a burden to others or would be miserable himself. You know, he would rather die you know, a day too early than a day too late, I guess. Yeah. And um, I, I feel very much the same way. And talking about life and death, one of the dives that you did one day was to take out one of your friends, Agnes, in 2011 from a cave. I mean, how was that? She was a cave diver as well. Yeah, well, one of my roles is the search and rescue officer for the Cave Diving Association in Australia and that plus this um, capability I'd been working on to hopefully bring live people out through a, a body of water kind of made me the person responsible for any fatalities that happened in, in the caves, in certainly in South Australia. And so I'd been working with the police divers in South Australia on, you know, a kind of combined effort between the cave divers and the police divers if if there were any fatalities and you know inevitably in our sport there is an occasional one and you know the police divers have very 
significant limitations on what they are able to do in terms of how far, how deep into a cave they can go, partly because of the occupational um, requirements that their diving imposes upon them. So there will be a diver who is too far into a cave or too deep into a cave that the police divers aren't essentially aren't allowed to, to try and recover. So I wanted to make sure we were in a position to assist if that ever happened. And unfortunately, we had a spate of three deaths in, in fairly quick succession, which I got directly involved with. And uh, Agnes was the most memorable, obviously, because she was a good friend of of myself and, and Craig, who helped me with the, the body recovery and a number of other people as well. But that experience of, of recovering deceased divers was actually very good training for what was to follow in Thailand. Mm. That technique of moving someone in an inert state, I guess, through a cave was to be more valuable, you know, in the end than I could have realised. Um, but again, you know, when you're actually doing things like this and, you know, why well, I have so, so much respect for the police divers who mm. have to do this on a weekly basis and not sometimes very fresh deceased people, you can imagine it's a pretty gruesome task. That that was a, a service, a community service almost that I was proud to be able mm. to offer. And, and to return these divers to their families, you know, again, is a massively important thing to do. I mean, Agnes, obviously, as you said, was a friend. What are you thinking when you're taking her body out? Well, you know, to be able to look after her mm. in that last voyage out of the cave and treat her with respect like only a friend really could. I think maybe, yeah, it was it was a very important thing for me to be able to do. And again, Craig and myself were able to keep our emotions in check while we're actually doing the physical part of that job. Afterwards, I, I was very profoundly upset for a, a couple of days. But I think that's normal and, and healthy to fall in a bit of a heap and have a think and a cry and and uh, and then move on. And, you know, that's that's a healthy thing to be able to do, I think. But while I'm at the coalface, if you like, I seem to be able to separate the emotion yes. from, the, from the job at hand. That's a good part of being a doctor, I think, as well, the mm. training. What is the best advice that you have ever been given? Work hard and be good to your mother. No, um... I can't remember the exact words, but I would say it was from an anaesthetist that I worked with when I was a very junior consultant uh, working in the UK. And it was along the lines of that cliche, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And uh, the conversation went something along the lines of, you know, don't do anything less than than aim for perfection mm. because there are so many little shortcuts you can take, whether in medicine or, or anywhere else. But in doing so, if you think to yourself, well, what's the gold standard here and why am I doing something a little bit less than that, which you can do at every moment of the day in, in work if you, if you want. I don't know, he just, he just made me realise that... Um, because his practice was one that I had just admired right from the outset. I could just see that he was an amazing anaesthetist. And I realised in the end it was because he just never even took one of those tiny shortcuts yes. which could become the thin end of that wedge or that normalisation of deviance that people talk about. Mm. You know, if you start here, it will end up here and then eventually it could become a problem. And there's stuff you can get away with as you become more experienced, but why even go down that path in the first place? Yes, so as I say, I can't remember the words, but I certainly remember the message. Yeah. 
What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? To do exactly what that guy told me. (laughs) There's no shortcuts. Uh, Experience and repetition and building uh, case numbers in medicine or dives in diving, there's no way to shortcut that path to mastery. Yes. And you have to be patient because if you just take shortcuts, then it will bite you or your patients in medicine. What's your greatest hope for society today? To just get along. And you know what? Um, When I was in Thailand and I saw this international global effort which was pursuing this incredibly clear and obvious outcome which was the lives of 13 young people, wasn't it incredible the way the the world community came together and put aside all their difference? We had... Chinese divers, European divers, divers from every country, America, US, Canada, whatever, um, all there with the same goal in mind. There was no egos. There was no internationalism, if that's a word. It was just about helping these kids in Thailand. And why is it that we can't do that for the other 300 and something days of the Mm. year when we don't share that goal? So that's my hope. We just start to get along a bit. What is a life of greatness to you? Well, I'd like to think about the way my dad conducted his life and that was to treat everyone as an equal and to welcome people into his home with a big smile and and an outstretched hand, whether you are the professor from his department or the, the janitor at the hospital or the man who ran the boom gate. He was actually friends with all those people for different reasons, like the, the orderlies and the guy at the gate He used to share a passion for bird watching and and keeping parrots. And so we used to go to those people's homes. And as a kid, I never knew who was the professor and who was the the guy who worked the boom gate at the hospital. But he was equally good mates with all of them. And, um, you know, when you left the house, he would walk you out to the front gate and see you off and just, you know, little things like that that made him such a, a gentleman and so widely loved, not just by our family, but by everyone, I think. So that for me is a life of greatness and I think I also said at the start that mum always said dad was a very Christian man but in no way religious but just, you know, what I think a Christian person would, would look like. I think that was, that was him. So if I can be half as kind and, and good to people as he was, then I'll be very, very happy. Richard Harry Harris, thank you for all the service that you have done. I mean, you rescued the lives of those 13 people and what you have done in service to cave diving and rescuing bodies and just all the amazing, amazing stuff you have achieved. It's it's a truly such a blessing. So thank you for all of that and thank you so much for this wonderful conversation today. Thanks, Sarah. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. 
For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new listener app now and listen for free.